All right, we're in our series on how we got our Bible. It's important, I think, for Christians to understand this. It's been challenged, of course, throughout history, and the challenges only get louder and more shrill, perhaps, with the Internet and lots of people out there with their videos about how the Bible is ridiculous and the Bible's a fairy tale and the Bible's for, for fools. But it's good for us to know where the Bible came from, not to... Uh, to lessen our faith, but rather to strengthen our faith. As I've studied how we got our Bible, it only increases my confidence in the truth of the Scriptures. Let's just do a, a bit of review from a couple weeks ago. The opening words of Hebrews say this, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways. God spoke in many ways. And we talked previously about a number of ways God has spoken to people through direct appearance or an audible voice, through visions and dreams, through angels and so forth. But I found this quote from the scholar Gleason Archer. He says this, If there be a God, if he is concerned for our salvation, a written scripture is the only way, apart from direct revelation from God each individual of each successive generation, he could reliably part this knowledge to us. It must be through a reliable written record, such as the Bible purports to be. And another couple of scholars, Norman Geisler and William Nix, have a good book called The General Introduction to the Bible, and they list several reasons why a written scripture is the best medium of revelation through history. First of all, precision. That is, writing things down makes us really think them through. We can look at the the text and examine it carefully. Also, propagation. That is, we get more accurate reproductions. How many of you played the telephone game, maybe a youth meeting or something? You know how that works, is you start one end and you, you whisper a phrase or a word and you kind of get it through this group of people and the question is, what's going to be on the other end? And usually it's something funny and very different from the original meaning. And you can imagine if we were transmitting this stuff only verbally over many centuries, how the, the words would get changed, even if people tried to get them right. And finally... It's important that we have a written scripture for preservation, that is, putting things on record. This is what God has given to us. You remember uh, in the Old Testament, the the tablets were put inside the the ark. A copy of God's law was put next to the ark. These were ways of saying this worship of God is associated with these words. Now, some late 19th century critics of the Bible thought that Moses and other early Bible writers lived in pre-literate times that as people couldn't read and write back then. So they couldn't have written the books that Christians supposed they did. But we know now that writing was widespread for some time before Moses. In fact, Moses, being divinely appointed to be raised as a son to Pharaoh's daughter, would have been exposed to all the learning of the Egyptians at his time. In fact, Stephen says this in Acts 22, that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, And he was a man of power in words and deeds. So in God's providence, Moses could write down God's law when many might not have had the education to do so. So Moses, by the fact that of where God placed him providentially, that that little basket and and into the arms of Pharaoh's daughter, he not only had the knowledge of the Egyptians, he had the knowledge of other writing forms and was able to meet Pharaoh many years later and speak to him, communicate with him, and then later on to write down the word of Yahweh to his people. 
Moses would have been almost uniquely qualified as the man to do that very thing in his day. Well, let's review a bit of what we talked about again last time about the canon of Scripture. The canon of Scripture, C-A-N-O-N, not the armament, but the uh, a word that means rule, a measuring rod. It came to be referred to, uh, to refer to rather a standard and an authoritative list. These are the books that we say are the Word of God. And Wayne Grudem said this, and I quoted this last time, to add or subtract from God's words would be to prevent God's people from obeying him fully, for commands that were subtracted would not be known to the people, and words that were added might require extra things of the people which God had not commanded. The precise determination of the extent of the canon of Scripture is therefore of the utmost importance. If we are to trust and obey God absolutely, we must have a collection of words that we are certain are God's own words to us. If there are any sections of Scripture about which we have doubts whether they are God's words or not, we will not consider them to have absolute divine authority, and we will not trust them as much as we would trust God himself. We talked a bit about the Old Testament canon. We'll talk about New Testament canon in the future. But when you look at the time of Christ, there was something called Scripture that Jesus and Paul and others could refer to. This is God's word to us. We recognize these books, these writings, as the word of God. And when we look at the way that Jesus and others treated the Old Testament, that was what they used to settle arguments. When there was a question about what God wanted from them, they could say, this is what God's word said, and that would settle the argument. We talked last time about the categories in the Old Testament. Sometimes it referred to as just the law. Sometimes the law and the prophets. And then even sometimes the law, the prophets, and Psalms. Real broad categories of the kinds of writings you'd find in the Old Testament. Now moving on to some new things. Last time, as we talked about a number of Old Testament references to various writings, I thought it might be interesting to step back from the discussion of the canon itself and spend a, some time today to talk about how things were written down in ancient times. We were just talking to our daughter on the way here, just uh, apropos of not much of anything, about typewriters. And she's used a typewriter before, but for those of us who grew up in the typewriter age, that was very different from the time now where you can do things on a computer or even on your phone. Um, setting, you guys remember some of you old enough how to, how to do footnotes, sort of set up how to center things, and on your computer you just center, but having to count all the things and divide by two, it was a real headache. But nowadays, you can communicate so much easier now. And the idea of sitting down and writing something is just abhorrent to me with, with a, a pen and paper. I don't like it. I get writer's cramp very quickly nowadays. <laughs> but how much has changed since the time of the New Testament and even the Old Testament? So let's just look at some of the ways that people wrote back, way back in the day, First of all, they would use things like clay or stone. Remember the Ten Commandments were tablets of stone? This is a picture of the Rosetta Stone. I know it's hard to see, but if you look more, maybe you can look at it later if you want to on the computer. But you can see some text. Actually, at the top is hieroglyphics. In the middle is another Egyptian script, and the bottom is ancient Greek. This was found in 1799, so many, many years after it was written down. And for a long time... Scholars saw hieroglyphics and didn't know what they meant. They were just pictures, uh, just just an unknowable script. But because they knew ancient Greek 
and the, the writings on the top, middle, and bottom were, were basically the same text. They could decipher, knowing ancient Greek, what the other script said. Uh, there's also uh, wax tablets. Some of you may have some, something like this when you were a kid. A wax tablet, you write on that, and you could peel off a piece of plastic, and it would erase it for you. Um, this is a uh, something that was a replica of the kind of thing you might have in Roman times. Um, you have here a wooden frame, and then put some wax on here. And there's a stylus here, made out of metal, perhaps. And this point you could use to draw. And this one is an eraser. So you could wipe over the, the wax once you were done, and you could write something again. Uh, you may have used papyrus before, seen papyrus before. This is, of course, from the term from which we get paper. Papyrus was a, inside of a reed cut into strips, and they'd be placed horizontally and vertically and pressed together and then dried. And then you could take these sheets and then you could paste them together to form long rolls. And, and remember, they didn't have books like this bound this way uh, until after the time of Christ. So we have these long scrolls. And it's interesting because you, you think of how long some of the, the books are in our Bible. And the limitation was how much could you actually physically carry around? How big a scroll can you have? You, you couldn't write some of the, maybe the novels we have today. You're going to take War and Peace and carry that around in a scroll. It would not work out very well for you. Another writing material besides the the uh, clay, stone, wax, uh, papyrus is parchment made out of animal skins. They take these animal skins, they would treat them, scrape off the hair and so forth, and and stretch them out on a rack like this. And then you could cut it and then make parchment, a very durable kind of thing that you could write on. I already mentioned uh, a stylus. We saw a picture before. Used to write on clay and wax tablets. Sort of a a piece of metal, perhaps, or of stone. Uh, Chisels, I know well to get into stone and make something really permanent. Or you could use a pen, like the quill pens from a couple hundred years ago. Those are the kinds of things that you might use thousands of years ago to write on papyrus and animal skins. You could get a trimmed reed, take a knife and scrape off, make a point, and, and dip it in the ink. I found an interesting reference to a stylus in Jeremiah 17.1, where God says, The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus. With a diamond point it is engraved upon the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars. You can picture uh, a heart of stone. And how would you write on a heart of stone? Well, you'd take an iron stylus, and you could write on a, a piece of stone the sins against Judah. So we have the materials, you have the, the clay, the, the papyrus, the animal skins, and you could write with a stylus, a chisel, pen, and you could also have ink that would be something like charcoal, maybe mixed with some kind of resin, some gum or oil to make it easily easy to write with. And again, it's I don't think I've ever really used a, a quill, maybe for fun, ink wells or a little before my time, but you can imagine what a headache it was to write in those days. We, we want to write something. We have probably a thousand pens at our house. They don't always seem to work, but all the time. But if we want a writing implement, we, we probably have one in our pocket. It's easy to write. But back in those days, it was quite a labor to get the ink, make sure it was the right consistency, and to get stylus, get the writing materials. It was very difficult to write in those days. And so it was very precious. You can, We'll see some pictures later about why they tended to use all the space they could on a piece of paper. They, they didn't waste the writing materials like we would perhaps today. 
One author says this, that the Old Testament Bible text was written with pen and ink in vertical columns with no space between words, sentences, or paragraphs, and only the consonants of the words were recorded. Again, that's the Old Testament in Hebrew. Just write almost the bare minimum just to get the, the words across. No punctuation or anything. Now, I want to look at some illustrations of writing of the Old Testament scripture. Now, look at Second Chronicles 34. Second Chronicles 34. We see here King Josiah and his desire to follow God's word. We see his humility with regard to the book of the law. Second Chronicles 34. Verse 1 says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord, and walked in the ways of his father David, and did not turn aside to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, so 15, 16, he began to seek the God of his father David, and in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the ashram, the carved images and the molten images. They tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and the incense altars that were high above them he chopped down, also the ashram, the carved images and the molten images he broke in pieces and scattered and, and ground it to powder and scattered it on the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. Then he burned the bones of the priests on their altars and purged Judah and Jerusalem. In the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, even as far as Naphtali and their surrounding ruins, he also tore down the altars and beat the ashram and the carved images into powder and chopped down all the incense altars throughout the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, verse 8, it says, In the 18th year of his reign, so again, he's 8 plus 18, roughly 26, 25, something like that. When he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, remember Shaphan for later, and Maseah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. Now, look down at verse 14. When they were bringing out the money which had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Hilkiah responded and said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Then Shaphan brought the book to the king and reported further word to the king, saying, Everything that was entrusted to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money which was found in the house of the Lord, and have delivered it into the hands of the supervisors and workmen. Remember, the the temple had fallen disrepair over many years, so they needed money to fix it. Moreover, verse 18, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest gave me a book. And Shaphan read from it in the presence of the king. Now, imagine if if you were the king of of a land like Israel, a, a theocracy, and you didn't have God's word, or at least not to any great extent. You might have some stuff passed down by the priests. Josiah knew enough to get rid of all the the false worship, to tear down the, the altars and the, the idols. But now he has something new. Verse 19, when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. Then the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdin, the son of Micah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Asaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book which has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord which is poured out on us because our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord 
to, to do according to all that is written in this book. So, we're not sure exactly what this book is. Of course, again, it's not a book that's bound at the edge like we have. This would be some sort of scroll. It could be the first five books, or maybe just Deuteronomy. And some think it was possibly the original that was laid out by Moses. If, just listen as I read Deuteronomy 31. Deuteronomy 31, verse 24 says, It came about when Moses finished writing the words of this law in a book until they were complete, that Moses commanded the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, saying, Take the book of the law and place it beside the Ark of the Covenant that it may remain there as a witness against you. So it could have been this, this very scroll or something like it that was ordinarily by the Ark of the Covenant, but had been misplaced over the years and lost and only found when they sort of cleared out the, the temple after many years of, of disuse. There's also, besides this finding of the book of the law in Second Chronicles, we go back to Deuteronomy 17. Deuteronomy 17. Verses 18 to 20, here's talking about the law regarding kings. It says, Now it shall come out when he, that is the king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priest. And assuming that a, a king would be able to write, and he would have the law, whether it just be Deuteronomy or, or more of it. It shall be with them, verse 19, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. So this was quite an accountability for the king as he takes his throne to write down the words of the law. He'd have no excuse. It's not like, I didn't know. You've actually written it with your own hand in this in this scroll, and you yourself would read it during your reign again and again and again, so you would know what God requires of you. And it's not just the king, but look at Deuteronomy 31, at verses 10 and 11. Now, the ordinary people of Moses' time would not necessarily be able to read or write themselves, but it was to be understood by them. Deuteronomy 31, verse 10, Moses commanded them, saying, that is, the, the, the priests and the elders, at the end of every seven years, at the time of the year of remission of debts, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God at the place which he will choose, you shall read this law in front of all Israel in their hearing. So this was the way for the people to hear God's word every seven years at least, and later on more often as, as they could, maybe in a synagogue in, in much later years. But this is how people heard back then. They wouldn't have a copy of the, their Bible. How many of you have more than ten copies of the Bible at home? Probably most of you. How many have more than ten versions on your phone? Probably all of you. Uh, so we have so many copies of the Bible, so many resources for the Bible. Imagine in these days, you might only have a few copies of God's Word in an entire country. And later on, you might have one in your, or a few in your city or village if your village was big enough or wealthy enough to pay for somebody to write down the, the words of God's law in a scroll for your, your town. So that's Deuteronomy 
and the responsibility for the king and also the people to know and understand God's word. Let's turn to Jeremiah 36. And I read some of this last time, but I find this fascinating, not just for the historical importance of it, but just because it has to do with how scriptures were written down. How did God communicate to the people in these days? Jeremiah 36 has a a fascinating insight into Jeremiah and his prophetic process and Baruch, his scribe, and how the king responds to it. Somebody said about this chapter, it's unique in that it contains the only detailed account of the production of a prophetical book in the Old Testament. It sheds much light on the way in which at least some of the prophetical literature came into being. So listen as I read Jeremiah 36, and you might remember a man named Shaphan from earlier Second Chronicles. We'll, see, we'll meet his grandson here in a couple minutes. So, Jeremiah 36, verse 1. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, remember we just saw Josiah, he was the king who, be, who was crowned when he was eight years old. That's his son Jehoiakim. Remember, godly king Josiah, his son Jehoiakim. King of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll and write on it all the words which I have spoken to you concerning Israel and concerning Judah and concerning all the nations from the day I first spoke to you from the days of Josiah even to this day. Perhaps the house of Judah will hear all the calamity which I plan to bring on them in order that every man will turn from his evil way and that I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch the son of Neriah and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. So we ask who wrote Jeremiah? Who wrote Jeremiah? Baruch, yeah. Technically speaking, he actually wrote down on, on paper or whatever he used, parchment. Jeremiah, verse 5, commanded Baruch, saying, I am restricted, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. So you go and read from the scroll which you have written at my dictation the words of the Lord to the people in the Lord's house on a fast day. And you also shall read them to all the people of Judah who come from their cities. He wants this word to get out. He can't go. He's he's imprisoned at this point, confined. Verse 7, Perhaps their supplication will come before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way. For great is the anger and the wrath that the Lord hath pronounced against his people. Baruch, the son of Neriah, did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. So in the temple area, there were places where you could speak to a large crowd. He would do that here. Verse 9, Now in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, so this is just the year after we see in verse 1, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then Baruch read from the book the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan the scribe, in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house to all the people. Now when Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, now remember, Shaphan was the one we saw in Second Chronicles who, who spoke with Josiah. He, he was the one who told Josiah they found the book. Now his grandson is here, Micaiah, had heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he went down to the king's house and into the scribe's chamber. And behold, all the officials were sitting there, 
Elishama the scribe, and Deliah the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan the son of Akbor, Gemariah the son of Shaphan, and Zedekiah the son of Hananiah, and all the other officials. Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read from the book to the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi the son of Nathaniah, the son of Shemaliah, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read to the people and come. So Baruch the son of Neriah took the scroll in his hand and went to them. So Baruch writes a scroll from Jeremiah's dictation, gives a scroll, reads it to the people. Micaiah hears about it. He goes to the scribe's chamber, verse 12. So in the king's house, there's a, a special chamber. You might call it an office, perhaps. This is where the, the scribe is and his, his associates work there. Micaiah tells them about this scroll. They get the scroll. They take it to these officials. Verse 15, they said to him, sit down, please, and read it to us. So Baruch read it to them. When they had heard all the words, they turned in fear one to another and said to Baruch, we will surely report all these words to the king. And they asked Baruch, saying, tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? His dictation? Baruch said to them, he dictated all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink on the book. Then the officials said to Baruch, go hide yourself you and Jeremiah, and do not let anyone know where you are. Now, why hide themselves? Because the king was so, uh, and would be so angry with them. He, he, he hated, the Lord will see it in a minute. He hated this word from the Lord. And so hide yourself, the king will come after you if you don't. Verse 20. So they went to the king and the court, but they had deposited the scroll in the chamber of Elishama the scribe, and they reported to all the words to the king. Then the king sent Jehudi to get the scroll. By the way, so they, they deposited the scroll somewhere else, but they tell the king what the scroll says. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll. He took it out to the chamber of Elishama the scribe. And Yehudi read it to the king as well as to all the officials who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning in the brazier before him. And when Jehudi had read three or four columns, the king cut it with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire that was in the brazier until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the brazier. Yet the king and all his servants, who heard all these words, were not afraid, nor did they rend their garments. Imagine the the contempt the king has for God's word, that he would cut it up into pieces. I remember I had a uh, kind of a comic book Bible when I was a kid, and there was a picture of of this king actually cutting up God's word in the scroll and throwing it in the fire, and he had this sort of evil look on his face, and I thought... Wow, that guy must really be a, a bad king to do that to God's word. Verse 25. Even though Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah pleaded with the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, Sarai, the son of Azrael, and Shemaliah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah after the king had burned the scroll and the words which Baruch had written at the dictation of Jeremiah, saying, Take again another scroll and write on it all the former words that were on the first scroll which Jehoiakim the king of Judah burned. And concerning Jehoiakim king of Judah, you shall say, Thus says the Lord, You have burned the scroll, saying, Why have you written on it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and will make man and beast to cease from it? Therefore, thus says the Lord, Concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out in the heat of the day and the frost of the night. 
and I will punish him for his descendants, or him and his descendants for his and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the men of Judah all the calamity that I have declared to them, but they did not listen. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch, the son of Neriah the scribe, and he wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and many similar words were added to them. So, not only did the king not cancel out this word against him, he got more words on top of that, more curses. Again, Micaiah here, we see, was the grandson of Shaphan, who had read the book of the law to Josiah, Jehoiakim's father. So you have Josiah, a godly king from his early days. He cut down the the idols. He got rid of the, the false worship as best he could. When they found the book of the law, Josiah heard it. What did he do? He, he repented. He rent his garments. He was in mourning. God, please don't judge us. And then his son, not too many years later, gets a word from God written and he treats it with contempt, throws it in the fire, and is judged for it. So just a, a few short years after his, his godly father had repented at hearing God's law, his son is cutting up God's law with a knife and burning it. We see in verse 23, the king cut it up with a scribe's knife and threw it into the fire. And this scribe's knife would, would be a professional tool of the scribe. He'd have a, a quill, a bottle of ink, he'd have his knife to trim the reed pens and writing materials. And really, what an extreme difference between father and son in their reaction to scripture. Well, let's continue on. So we see an illustration of how God's word was written down, perhaps in Jeremiah's time at least. Let's look now at the transmission process. How was the Bible transmitted year to year? Obviously no photocopiers back then. You couldn't just copy and paste stuff. You had to make copies of things to distribute to people and also to, if you had a, a scroll, maybe you read it week after week in your in your synagogue. Again, this would be much later. It's the synagogues. Eventually it would wear out, so you'd want a new copy made. And so you'd, have, you'd take your your existing copy and make a copy of that. Now the transmission of the Old Testament by Jews is different from the process by which the Old Testament was, or the New Testament was transmitted by Christians. And we'll look at the New Testament transmission another time. But here's some rules, just, just to give you an idea of what it would be like back then to, if you could even write, if you were a scribe, what it would take for you to, to transmit God's word from copy to copy. So these are rules for writing out synagogue roles in the first few centuries after Christ. First of all, a synagogue role must be written on the skins of clean animals, so not, not a pig or some other kind of unclean animal, prepared for the particular use of the synagogue by a Jew. Don't want the Gentiles touching it and, and uh, making it unclean. These scrolls, these, these uh, portions of skin, must be fastened together with strings taken from clean animals. Every skin must contain a certain number of columns equal throughout the entire codex. It's a term for a book. Uh, at this time, they were bound in codexes or codices. So you'd have the, the much like our Bible, our books today, they would take these pages and they would sew them on one end. It turned out to be easier to carry around to handle than it was to carry scrolls. Imagine if you dropped a scroll and it like, unrolled like a, a carpet or something. It's just, okay, go get the scroll and bring it back. Easier than if you drop a book and just pick it up again. 
The length of each column must not ex- extend over less than 48 or more than 60 lines, and the breadth must consist of 30 letters. The ink should be black, neither red, green, nor any other color, and prepared according to a definite recipe. An authentic copy must be the exemplar that is the original from which the transcriber ought not in the least deviate. Not a word or letter, not even a yod, that's that's the little stroke in Hebrew, must be written from memory, the scribe not having looked at the codex before him. So you, you look at the exemplar and you write what you see, not what you remember. Between every consonant, the space of a hair or a thread must intervene. Between every new parasha or section, the breadth of nine consonants. Between every book, three lines. The fifth book of Moses must terminate exactly with the line, sorry, but the rest need not do so. Besides this, the copyist must sit in full Jewish dress, wash his whole body, and not begin to write the name of God with a pen newly dipped in ink, so there won't be a smudge. So you would not want to start writing Yahweh, you dip your pen in the ink, and then you start writing Yahweh, and then you get a, a, a smudge or a flick of ink, and that would be bad. This kind of thing, if you, if you use a typewriter and you make a mistake, sometimes a whiteout will do it. This kind of thing, basically starting over again. It's not a lot of fun. And then it says, finally, should a king address him while writing that name, he must take no notice of him. So he's so focused on writing God's name, you write the, the full name of God before you do anything else. You don't want to write half of God's name and just leave it. And the, the guy who produced this list, he continued, the roles in which these regulations are not observed are condemned to be buried in the ground or burned, or they are banished to the schools to be used as reading books. So the, the official synagogue scrolls were created with the utmost care and precision. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what it means. If it means they have to sort of fill out the line or, or something, try, try to fill out the space. Yeah, I don't know if it was a way of keeping folks from trying to put stuff in the bottom. Like if you have a blank piece of paper, or maybe you have this much, you could perhaps write some other things below it. You want to fill out the whole page, so you know, this is the end of God's word, nobody adds anything to it. Uh, some authors said this, the fidelity of the New Testament text depends upon the multiplicity of manuscripts, whereas in the Old Testament, the accuracy of the, test, the text rather results from the ability and reliability of the scribes who transmitted it. So that the scribes were so diligent, so skilled, they, they would do it just exactly right. Now, the attention to detail we see here in this, in this list, and this isn't a full list anyway, was shown to be effective after the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, here's a picture of um, the, the kind of jars. Again, it's hard to see on the screen here, but these are some jars which were found in some caves uh, that had scrolls in them. And this is a place near the Dead Sea, the north of the Dead Sea, called Qumran, you can see there's a number of many caves throughout this region, and a shepherd went in there at some point and found these things. And there were many, many uh, jars with these scrolls throughout these networks of caves. So they were found in the 1940s, and they were dated from the 2nd century B.C. to the 1st century A.D., some of the oldest uh, writings we, ever, we even have of, of the, the sort, because most other places... If you have some paper, how long do you think this paper would last? 
you know, talk about acid-free paper, but can you imagine your, your book lasting 2,000 years? It's almost as if God created this Dead Sea area just to preserve his, his words for 2,000 years, because there's probably no other place on earth where you could get this sort of preservation of God's word. The, things like parchment would deteriorate really quickly in most environments. Yes, or, or parchment too. Um, yeah, parchment papyrus, and even some things written on uh, bits of pottery or, or clay tablets, that kind of thing. Yeah. They were found in the late 1940s, but they, they dated from about, yeah, about 200 BC or so to first century AD. So it wasn't all at once, but over a course of maybe two or three hundred years, they deposited these, these items. And so here's, here's a, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You can see the things written in columns here very carefully. Um, and you can see the, the different pages that would be rolled up in, as you had the different pieces of parchment or, or papyrus sewn or glued together. And then you would write the columns and then roll them up into a, a big scroll. And we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls, a complete book of Isaiah and many fragments from every Old Testament book except Esther. So a good part of the Old Testament we, they found in some many... There, there's also manuscripts of, of other portions of other writings besides the Old Testament. Now, before we talk about Dead Sea Scrolls and, and how amazing they are, let's mention the Masoretes. The Masoretes were Jewish scholars who preserved the Old Testament between uh, about 500 to 950. And when we look at the Old Testament texts that are translated from most of your Bibles, they came from what's called the Masoretic text. So these Masoretes, for several hundred years, again, about 500 years after Christ to about the, the end of the first millennium, that's the basis for the Hebrew text from which our Bibles come today in English. Now, when you compare these Masoretic texts, again, from 500 to 950 or so, Compared to the manuscripts from about 1,000 uh, years before then, that is, you, you compare these written uh, centuries after Christ, those written a couple centuries before Christ, they were nearly identical. And Gleason Archer says this, that the two copies of Isaiah, one that's from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then the one from the Masoretic Text, proved to be word-for-word word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% of variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. And then one more quote. Again, uh, William Geisler, or Norman Geisler and William Nix talking about the Masoretic text in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Of the 166 words in Isaiah 53, there are only 17 letters in question. Ten of these letters are simply a matter of spelling, which does not affect the sense. Four more letters are minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions. The remaining three letters comprise the word light, which is added in verse 11 and does not affect the meaning greatly. Thus, in one chapter of 166 words, there is only one word of three letters in question after a thousand years of transmission, and this word does not significantly change the meaning of the passage. So you see how careful these scribes were copying from... Uh, decade after decade, from the time before Christ to many years after Christ, the, the text was preserved in an amazing way. Again, without photocopiers, without photographs. Just, just incredible how how carefully that they they wrote these these things and transmitted them. So we can have confidence 
that the scriptures that Jesus had were the scriptures that Moses written or had written or Jeremiah had written and the, the scriptures that the Masoretes had centuries later and the, the text that we have today. Yeah, autocorrect. <laughs> yeah, yeah let's do something. Yeah, I mentioned that autocorrect would do some of these names in the, in the Bible and so forth. But yeah, it's it's amazing to see the way that God has preserved His Word through fallible men. You know, men make mistakes. How many of you have been writing for a while and even on a computer or something, you start to doze off and fall asleep? Scribes would get tired of sitting for all day, but they still did their job well, and God preserved His Word through those men. Well, any questions? I know we've kind of gone fast. We could have dug in a lot more, but hopefully you find that interesting. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you that you have preserved your word. Thank you for men like Jeremiah and Baruch, who were faithful to speak your word and to write it down. Men like Josiah, who repented at the teaching of your word and made sure that people heard your word. We would not be like those who show contempt for your word by certainly not cutting it up or even ignoring it or only choosing the places that, that we we like and maybe setting aside the, the hard words of scripture. Lord, we want to love your word even as Jeremiah did, even when it was uh, brings about sorrow. We read about sin and its consequences, yet it is your word that gives us the good news of Jesus Christ. May we love your word and embrace it. May we proclaim it in our day. May we be faithful to transmit it to our our family, friends, the church, that your word will be propagated and loved in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.